Six people, including two police officers, have been shot dead in rural Queensland. We are an organisation in mourning tonight. The Albanese government is ending the year celebrating the passage of its energy market intervention bill. We believe that Australian households and small businesses deserve this support. Hugo Chalmers over there is going to have complete uh, order. control. The member for Hume will refer to members by their correct title. And yet at $12 a gigajoule, the profit across the spectrum of Australia's gas fields will sit at somewhere between four and eight dollars. So spare me the performative histrionics. The AAT's public standing has been irreversibly damaged as a result of the actions of the former government over nine years. This election has really sort of turned out to be a battle between two former coup leaders, Frank Bainimarama and Sitaveni Rambuka. And the World Cup final 2022 is France the holders against Argentina. We apologise for the extreme, inhumane acts committed against you. The children away. The rap. <laughs> rap. Joining me now for the very last wrap of the week's news for 2022 are Annika Smethurst, State Politics Editor at The Age, and Greg Sheridan, Foreign Editor for The Australian. Welcome to you both. Good to be with you, Kath. Well, let's start with the big news of the day today. Quite the uh, policy drop for a Friday in December, as you just heard in the previous interview. The government has axed the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Annika, is Mark Dreyfus right to do this? Has the AAT become too politicised? Is its reputation irreversibly damaged? Look, I do think it was at risk of that. I don't think it was perhaps beyond uh, repair. Um, and in many ways, um, I've seen many governments over the years uh, end a certain thing and replace it with something else and you end up with something very similar. So um, I'm, I may sound like a cynic, but I don't have great hope for it being um, a huge reform. But I do think there were problems with, I guess, the optics of it. There was something like 85 former Liberal MPs who had, had been put on it. Uh, we know staffers often end up on it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm actually quite a defender of politicians um, using their skills after they leave office. I, I did a story a few years ago um, about a number of politicians who struggled to get a job outside of um, parliament. And often, not all of them, mm. a lot of them do have actually really good skills, good knowledge about, you know, how things work. Um, and I, I don't think necessarily we should, you know, get to the stage where we think just putting them um, in roles. I, I note the government elected Jenny Macklin to something today. You know, these people have often given a big service to the country and their skills can be used. But I do think uh, in this case uh, it was getting to the stage where it was seen as somewhere you went if you lost your seat or lost pre-selection or you mm. were owed a favour by somebody and it did need to be reformed. Mm. I just don't know. Um, I guess I don't hold great hope that we're going to end up with something vastly better. Mm. Greg, do you think this is just going to wash over the heads of most Australians? I mean, the vast majority probably don't know what the AAT does, nor will they ever have anything to do with it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the AAT is a body of sublime um, insignificance and obscurity. But I think it was a poor show by the government to abolish it. It's not a good practice for one government to get into office and say, OK, the other mob were in office for nine years. They made all the appointments. So instead of just 
appointing all of our mates, which is what they're going to do over the next however many years we're in office, we're going to abolish the body so that way we can effectively sack all of the other side's appointees. Labor is much more ruthless about appointing ideological friends than the Liberals are. The Liberals are absolutely inclined to give their mates jobs, but there's there's not much political or ideological quality to it, whereas Labor ruthlessly creates and captures culture-forming ideological bodies and, and staffs them relentlessly with uh, people who share the same worldview as they do. Now, the poor old libs certainly gave a lot of their, their mates jobs at the AAT, but I, th- I think it's a bit like this practice we've got into of holding royal commissions into the previous government's policies. Now, the Liberals were worse at this. They really started it than Labor, but it's a very bad policy. You know, the previous government's policies have been adjudicated by the electorate, uh, so you don't need to quasi-criminalise them. And similarly, you shouldn't just abolish a body because uh, the other side appointed people to it. You're mm. going to appoint all the new people to it. That's uh, that's good enough. Okay, well, moving on to uh, the other issue that's taken up a lot of oxygen this week, that is obviously the energy intervention uh, that the government has successfully p- uh, passed in, in Parliament. Annika, I suppose you, you could forgive them for feeling a little giddy after the week that they've had. They promised intervention in the energy market and this week they delivered. But do you think they've actually delivered something that will deliver meaningful relief to people and business? Look, it it will make bills less. I, I think that is one thing. But you, this is, you've got to put this in context of during mm. the election, we had Anthony Albanese stand there and promise to save Australians $275 annually on their energy bill. Now, since May, we all know anyone that's opened an electricity or gas bill uh, without gasping, um, it has just been incredible, you know, the price rises we've seen. And um, that can be blamed on, you know, the Ukraine and all these other things. At the end of the day, by May, we sort of knew what was um, happening over there. And the promise has been doubled down on over and over again too, even as recently as during the budget. So, uh, they had to do something. Um, it, it, if you look at the sort of projections for next year, and I say that cautiously because they haven't necessarily been accurate um, in previous budgets, but if you look where they're going to go, they're still going to rise significantly. But I guess this means, you know, it look at between instead of power bills rising 60 to 70%, it might go up 40% next year. Um, politically, though, I think they really had to do something because so far the Albanese government hasn't hasn't made too many missteps. Um, you wouldn't expect that from an early uh, government, but um, there have been notable examples where in the first six months governments have sort of made themselves a big target. This was an area where they were vulnerable. I think that promise, that $275 annually to the energy bills, you know, by 2025 that Anthony Albanese promised during the election could have come back to haunt him. So they really didn't have much option here but to do something. I just think in terms of voters, and, you know, this is my job not to say whether I think a policy is good, it's it's how it will land in, you know, the public. Mm. I do think you don't often get rewarded for things that you sort of Relief you bring, but if you if you have to explain to people how much worse it could have been, it's like during COVID, you know, we often heard um, Scott Morrison or Josh Frydenberg say, well, if we didn't do this, this would have happened and this mm. many people would have died and, you know, if we didn't introduce JobKeeper, this would have happened when it was being criticised. 
and it, it it's very hard politically to say, well, it, we, your life could have been a lot worse and we did this thing to make it a little bit better, but it's still hard we get that. Mm. So I do think even though there is some relief coming, uh, people do still have, you know, a, a lot of issues with cost of living. Whenever we've done polling, it's the number one issue at the moment. Mm. Um, it, and, and by miles, you know, by three times to sort of the next uh, big issue. It definitely was during the state election and during the federal election. So I, I think they they might not get quite the reward that it has taken for them to get this across the line. Mm. I mean, Greg, if you were listening uh, during the week, I'm sure many people were struck by all of the MPs of their, their various hues yesterday talking with such conviction about the, necess- the necessity of this intervention or that this intervention is a catastrophe, that the energy companies on the one hand are awash with profits and then on the other destined to fail if there's ongoing market intervention. They seem to be, you know, coming from this on really different planes planets, different sides, not really different sides of the chamber. Yeah, so I'd, I'd agree absolutely with Annika's political analysis. But in, in answer to your question, I'd say each of the main political groups just deals with a bit of reality that they find um, compatible to their outlook. So I think the situation demanded some intervention. Mm. Uh, we've got all this gas. There's no reason why we should be paying the same price for it as, say, Germany pays for it, which doesn't have gas. I mean, that's our traditional advantage. We've got abundant, cheap energy. And um, the best system would be a system like the West Australian system, where you have, a, you know, 20% of your production or something reserved for domestic consumption at a, at a reasonable price, which has got to cover your costs and give you a proper good return on investment. And then the other 80%, you can sell on the global market at whatever insane price you like. Mm. But each, each one of the parties... Um, denies a bit of reality they don't like. So the Greens and the Teals claim they want us to get out of all fossil fuels straight away, shut down our coal and gas mines and all the rest of it. Well, then we would have no power. We wouldn't be able to keep the lights on uh, whatever we paid for it, and we'd have no income because our national income comes from exporting commodities, including large amounts of fossil fuels, coal, gas and uranium and so on then Labor is a bit unrealistic because it's sort of done a dance with the Greens where it's never really been enthusiastic about developing new gas fields. So Labor and Liberal state governments in New South Wales and Victoria made it impossible to explore for gas for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden we're demanding that Queensland supply them with gas. So the Liberals are right to say you've got to increase supply. But then the Liberals were also wrong to say you know, the rules of the free market are uh, sacrosanct here. They didn't operate a free market when they were in government. They were cajoling the gas companies to, um, you know, stump up some some supplies for the domestic market. So it's neither a catastrophe nor is it an act of genius. It's a slightly clumsy method of intervention until we get, I think, to a domestic reservation system. We certainly need a lot more gas in the in the system. And I think whoever was in government would have intervened one way or another in the circumstances we were facing. So do you think that a domestic gas reservation for the East Coast, like what we've seen work well in on in the West, will be a reality at some stage? Well, it's just common sense, isn't it? I mean, if we, we own the resource, the resource belongs to Australia and um, you're entitled to say to an investor, the, the problem comes when you're dealing with existing contracts. It would It would create sovereign risk to disturb an existing contract, but to say for new for new production going forward, um, you have to pre- res- 
you know, reserve 20% or whatever it might be for Australian use, and that has to be at a reasonable price, mm. is perfectly fine. I mean, Queensland has gone down the road of massively increasing coal royalties. That's mm. that's a huge sovereign mm, risk because, mm. yeah, that's not what the investors invested. That's not the basis on which they invested. Having said all that, of course, Australia is still the best place in the world um, to invest in terms of the rule of law and reliable political system and so on. But I think a reservation system, absolutely. It's just common sense. On RN Drive, Annika Smithhurst from The Age and Greg Sheridan from the Australian newspaper are here talking about the big issues of the week. Turning now to this really awful siege or ambush in Queensland's Western Downs earlier this week, we've learned a little about the background of the perpetrators and their retreat into the murky world of conspiracy theories and in particular their isolation from the community during the pandemic. Greg, the investigation into this dreadful incident is really only just beginning. Were you surprised, though, by the violent intent of this trio? Well, yes. I mean, it's a shocking and terrible incident. And I thought Parliament um, was at its very best in the condolence motion uh, yesterday. I thought everyone who spoke there did did the nation proud. Um, Thank God we don't have American gun laws or we mm. have incidents like this far more frequently. But I am fascinated by the rise of this conspiracy theory mentality. And um, huge numbers of people in our society now believe things that just aren't true. Now, most people who go down the conspiracy theory, you know, um, rabbit holes, don't become violent murderers. Mm. But... Uh, you know, if the ABC broadcast or the Age wrote or the Australian wrote something which was demonstrably untrue, we'd get into a lot of trouble legally and from regulatory agencies. But on the on the net, every day, millions of things are published which are simply just untrue. Mm-hmm. You know, now some mm-hmm. of them are so bizarre, you know, the Princess Diana faked her own death or mm-hmm. that uh, Hillary Clinton died in 2016 and was played by a body double or that the American government is run by a network of secret pedophiles. Uh, these, these are just truly bizarre. Mm. But I think our whole culture has become kind of pro-conspiracy theory, and this is a terrible plug, but I have a long piece about this in tomorrow's paper. I mean, every Hollywood movie involves a conspiracy theory, you know, The Matrix or even The Da Vinci Code, the whole of Christianity is a, is a conspiracy. This is a phenomenon predominantly on the right, but the left is just as bad. Postmodernism denies objective reality and says that everything is really uh, undertaken to preserve the power structures of an unjust society. Mm. And we just reinforce. And then COVID, I think, has amped this up a well, thousand times. Yeah. I, I want to ask Annika at, uh, about that because we know that ideas uh, can flourish on that unregulated space of the of the internet. But Annika, you lived through the pandemic lockdowns in Melbourne and know well how divisive they were. The extremism experts that I've spoken to this week all agree that the COVID pandemic has emboldened certain individuals and communities across the world. In the case of Victoria, this sentiment was really tested at the state election recently. Dan Andrews won convincingly. So does that mean that this animosity is dissipating or has in fact dissipated? No, and I think we're quite dangerous 
to, um, you know, reflect on the election that way. This is not in any way to take away from Labor's victory. They've held on to effectively the same number of seats, in fact, one more um, than they had previously. And in no way does this take away from them. But I think any thought that the Victorian public and and the election result was a clear, you know, um, I guess thumbs up because due to the uh, lockdowns, I just don't think is correct. Like if you look at um, Victoria, it's the only place now that has a United Australia Party senator in Canberra representing it. There in the new state parliament here will be a Pauline Hanson representative. And this is very unusual for a Victorian um, political landscape. It has always been progressive. It's regularly called the Massachusetts of, um, you know, America, Australia's Massachusetts in terms of its progressive nature. Now, I think there is an element. I think it's not going away. And I do think it was, I guess, strengthened during that time. And I think one of the great problems I found when I came down here and I did spend, I guess, the first half of 2020, I was still in Canberra. So the next 18 months I was in Melbourne and I found it so surprising that there was a real, you're either with us or against us. You know, mm-hmm. like I had, you know, no issue with lockdown. I didn't love it, but I understood the reasons for it. Mm-hmm. But I found that if you even you know, dead questioned one element of it, like why is there a curfew? And I'm happy to stay at home, but why is there a curfew? Or why uh, uh, Why do I have to wear a mask when I'm walking my dog alone? That you were really put in a, well, you're anti-lockdown and, and vice versa, people that were supportive of the lockdowns, um, you know, were, were pro-vax, were pro-Dan Andrews. And there's, you know, very little, um, very little about life as black and white, mm. um, particularly that sort of time. But I, the language around it, um, social media, it, it really became a situation where people uh, became quite tribal. Mm. And I do think that, yeah, the I don't think it's gone away. I think it exists in Victoria. Um, I think we're wrong to ignore it and I think we're also wrong to engage and dismiss people too that um, perhaps aren't quite down the uh, the path of conspiracy theorists yet but um, maybe do have that distrust in governments or authority or vaccines. I think, you know, I don't have a solution for it but I do feel that uh, engaging with them and trying to talk to them as opposed to sort of brandishing them as idiots or, um, you know, conspiracy theorists or, or pushing them further out is mm. only going to make the situation worse. Mm. Just before we move on to another topic, Greg, I mean, what's the role of the media in all of this? Is there too much focus on this aspect, on these um, ideologues or are we giving, are we growing them by giving them too much airtime? I don't really think so, Kath. Um, I heard a former colleague of yours, Chris Yulman, give a magnificent speech once, and he said, you know, the the iPhone and the internet has made all of you citizens now into journalists. Mm-hmm. And he said, and let me tell you, compared to us, you're pretty bloody terrible. <laughs> um, the, the conspiracy theory is not growing in the mainstream media. Um, it's growing outside of the mainstream media. In, in fact, it's growing at a time when the influence of the mainstream media has never been weaker, really. Um, I agree with absolutely everything Annika said, and I think one of the enormous challenges of our civilization is to civilise the digital universe and bring it under the rule of law. I'm not proposing that it all be censored or anything, but, uh, you know, we, we just like new, new inventions in the past, the railroads or the newspapers or whatever, they ultimately had to be regulated. 
Well, I think the, the digital space has to come under the rule of law as well. But there's a lot that goes into this syndrome of conspiracy theory and there's no easy solution. And the paths to radicalism and violence are very many and different. So there's no one one size fits all. I mean, we're, we're fortunate that this kind of terrible tragedy in Queensland is mm. so rare mm. in Australia. Mm. Mm. Well, Greg and Annika, finally, students across the country have been getting their end of year marks this week. So I'd love to get your report card for the new parliament quite briefly. Annika, you can take the lead. I will be quick. Look, I do think um, the story of the election, everybody tried to make it uh, the success of the Teals and they were going to hold the balance of power. I'd actually say the Greens uh, were the success of this year in terms of they didn't just pick up seats in in a Melbourne, you know, where they're traditionally strong. They beat Liberal MPs. Mm. They beat Labor MPs. Um, and show, so far they've they've managed to, you know, stay together, not factionalise um, uh extremely. Uh, and I'd say have more influence than uh, many of the teal candidates. So I think, um, you know, it's it's been overlooked a little bit and for a long time their vote had sort of stagnated and they hadn't been able to grow their numbers, particularly in the lower house. Um, but I think they're the sort of success of uh, particularly the election. But um, even in the Victorian election, it does seem that they tend to be on the rise at the moment. Mm-hmm. Greg, what are your thoughts? How did the new parliament go uh, this year? Well, um, I think Albanese's had a very impressive start. So there are there are Labor policies in economics and social policy and so on that I disagree with. But in the area of most concern to me, national security, foreign affairs, defence, uh, I think this has been a fantastic start by a very sober and sensible government, which is dealing with reality. I think Albo has a very good tone. If Albo is a successful prime minister, he will be the Labor Party version of John Howard. Not necessarily the smartest guy in every room, not necessarily the most charismatic, but a parliamentary lifer. He knows how things get done. Good judge of people, man of common sense and courtesy, decency. Uh, Penny Wong has been a blizzard of energy in the South Pacific. And as a result, she, for the moment, has checkmated Chinese influence. The uh, the government has not given an inch to China and yet has normalised and stabilised as far as you can the relationship and everything Miles says about what they're going to do about defence when the big statement comes out in March is promising. So a lot of governments have been promising and fallen away. But if I was them, if I was their school teacher on the first six months, <laughs> I'd say outstanding performance, way above expectations, <laughs> way above expectations. Not not talking at the back of the class, not listening or anything like that. That's um, a great uh, way to wrap things up. Annika Smethurst, State Politics Editor at The Age, and Greg Sheridan, Foreign Editor at The Australian. Thank you both for joining me and have a lovely break. Thanks so much. You too, great Christmas. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.